listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. What we've been doing is uh, we've been looking uh, at the book of Acts, and I am in Acts chapter 2. I'm doing sort of a part 2 on Acts chapter 2. And we're looking at uh, the Holy Spirit. And as I was thinking through this this week, I have um, recognized all over again an encounter and a relationship with the Holy Spirit is one of the keys to lasting change. And um, I was looking at what, what it takes to help people long-term. What, what needs to happen for people to, I don't know how else to put it, get healed, get whole, get better, do well, thrive, be overcomers. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about three different things. You need an encounter with the Holy Spirit and actually an ongoing relationship with him. You need to be uh, a vital participant in a spiritual community, and you need to have um, a legitimate devotion to the Word of God and some consistent meditation and prayer. Um, We're majoring on the Holy Spirit, and He and a relationship with Him is certainly essential. I don't, I don't know what I would have done. I would. I would not have been a very good Christian. Now, that's making an assumption that I am, but I would not have, (laughs) you know, maybe the jury's out. But I certainly would have not have been what I am today apart from a vital encounter with the Holy Spirit and continuous episodes and an ongoing relationship with him. That's just all there is to it. I grew up Presbyterian. I grew up um, probably sixth-generation my forefathers came before the Revolutionary War uh, to express religious freedom from um, Scotland and Ireland, that part of the world. And with all of that goodness that came from my life in the Presbyterian Church and my heritage and my background and godly parents, I was virtually, even as a Christian, disinterested in the Bible until I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And after that, the Bible came alive to me in a way I never knew it could or would. And so um, what I want to do at first, I want to, I'm going to make a review, maybe five points. And, um, but I want to read that Acts chapter two section. And if you're reading your Bibles or your phones or your iPads or your tattoos or whatever it is, however it is you use the scripture, (laughs) We're basically looking at Acts chapter 2 and then Isaiah 61. And um, so last week I made you read this out loud, so I'm going to let you, I'm going to give you the week off. I'll just read it, but you can read along. Uh, Acts 2, 1 through 13, then I skip down to 39. On the day Pentecost was being fulfilled, all the disciples were gathered in one place. This is from the Passion Translation. Suddenly they heard the sound of a violent blast of wind rushing into the house from out of the heavenly realm. The roar of the wind was so overpowering it was all anyone could bear. 
Then all at once, a pillar of fire appeared before their eyes. It separated into tongues of fire that engulfed each one of them. They were all filled and equipped with the Holy Spirit and were inspired to speak in tongues. Empowered by the Spirit to speak in languages they had never learned. Now at that time, there were Jewish worshipers who had immigrated from many different lands to live in Jerusalem. When the people of the city heard the roaring sound, crowds came running to where it was coming from, stunned over what was happening because each one could hear the disciples speaking in his or her own language. And if you look further in the book of Acts, I left that part out because it was a little bit redundant, but it lists about 10 or 15 different parts of the country or parts of the world people came to, and they were hearing these Galileans, and Galileans were basically considered rednecks by the Jewish people. Everybody know that? They, yeah, they really were considered rednecks, you know, hicks. Um, they were, I think Galilee was north of Jerusalem. Is that right? Who knows? They were to the north what we have been considered in the south. <laughs> anyway, moving right along. Um, verse 7, bewildered. They said to one another, aren't these all Galileans? So how is it that we hear them speaking in our own languages? Then I skip down to verse 11. Yet we hear them speaking God's mighty wonders in our own dialects. They all stood there dumbfounded and astonished, saying to another, to one another, what is this phenomenon? In other words, they're asking, what does this mean? Verse 13, but others poked fun at them and said, they're just drunk on new wine. So that must have been quite a spectacle. And then I want to skip down to verse 39, talking about what had just happened to the disciples, the 120. It says this, for God's promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and your families, for those yet to be born and for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Is that, do we have that up here, verse 39, on the overhead? That's yes, this is, okay. Let's read verse 39 together. For God's promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and your families, for those yet to be born, and for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so I want to make five points which all, all of this is by way of review to catch uh, anyone up. Actually, um, yeah, to catch people up, we weren't here last week. Uh, and, and if you were interested, you can go get this message at queencity.church and um, under media. So five points of review from part one. Number one, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, who is God, not an it or a power or a force, but a person. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was one of the five or six most important events in human history. Number two, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the promise of the Father and identified him as a gift, not some something or someone. You can't earn a relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's given to us as a gift. Number three, the Holy Spirit became the agent or the instrument or the means of empowerment and equipping 
that transformed frightened disciples into bold and decisive world changers and culture shifters. Number four, Joel 2.28 prophesied this event many years earlier. And so you have at least two witnesses about this happening. One was Jesus. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the promise of the Father. In the Bible, there are estimates that there are at least 7,000 different promises, but this is the only the promise. In other words, the most prominent promise Jesus could ever make. And it was a person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. Well, in Joel 2.28, he prophesied this event many, many years earlier. Um, this is the fulfillment of what was prophesied. And, and so I'm reading out of Acts 2.16 and 17, but it's a, it comes out of Joel 2.28. This is the fulfillment. So what was going on? The apparent so-called drunkenness or the fire sitting on people's heads, that had to be a spectacle. Galileans speaking in languages they had never learned before. People hearing the Galileans prophesying and declaring the wonders of God was the fulfillment of what Joel prophesied. And this was it. For God says, this is what I will do in the last days. I will pour out my spirit on everybody hmm. and cause your sons and your daughters to prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will experience dreams from God. The Holy Spirit will come upon all my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And so Joel has indicated this was going to happen many, many years before. Sons and daughters were going to prophesy. Young men were going to have visions. Old men were going to dream dreams. Point number four. And point number five, this experience of being empowered by the Holy Spirit is for everyone in every generation, Acts 2.39. For God's promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and your families, for those yet to be born, and for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, without getting into too much theology, there seems to be a difference between the Holy Spirit being with us and the Holy Spirit being in us in power. Does everybody understand that? Um, actually, Jesus told the disciples uh, when the Holy Spirit comes, he that who is with you shall be in you. And so there's a very distinct promise that the Holy Spirit would dwell in people in ways that would essentially replace the practical relational experience the apostles had with the person of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying it replaced the relationship with Jesus, but what I'm saying is this. When Jesus was here, he could be at one place at one time, but he told the apostles and the disciples, it's expedient, it's necessary, it's important for you, for me to go, which they did not like. They did not like that idea. But he said, if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit back to you. And so um. That is what this is all about. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit here. I want to talk about what, what it takes for a person to experience true change. So I'm going to make some observations of my own over the years, and I think these aren't arguable. I think everybody could uh, approve or appreciate it. But true change in a person's life will not come from outside impositions, pressures, 
or laws and legal requirements. What you ought to do has absolutely no influence on enabling you to do it. Does that make sense? Even though you should probably do what you ought to do. That's the problem, isn't it? But transformation won't come by mandate, by demand, by force, by imposition, or by control. It just simply doesn't work. But lasting change comes from the inside out as a result of the Holy Spirit's power working in concert with both a person's humility and their faith. Because it's true, the Holy Spirit will not sort of strong-arm anyone. Um, I have seen him do things that look to me like he strong-armed some people, but basically the Holy Spirit will empower people to the degree that they uh, express humility and faith. Humility in that you need God's help. And faith, you believe that this promise is legitimate and that God wants to do something for you. Because lasting change comes from the inside out. Now, there's a very interesting Old Testament example um, of a practice that Israel never instituted, although God told them he wanted them to, and it's called the year of Jubilee. How many of you are familiar with the year of Jubilee? Yeah, let me give you a little bit of the ins and outs of it, sort of a surface concept here. God intended to inaugurate a process in Israel called the year of Jubilee as a method of ongoing blessing in Israel. And basically what you're going to find out was this was supposed to be a major cultural reset every 50 years. So every 50 years was announced to be, was supposed to be announced as a Jubilee year. All real property should automatically revert to its original owner. Some of the verses, if you want to look this up, Leviticus 25.10 um, through 13, you can see some of this. And so every 50 years, all the possessions that you had lost were to be returned to you. And you were to be able to be restored and returned to your family. Those who were compelled by poverty, who had sold themselves as slaves to their brothers, should regain their liberty. And this would virtually end perpetual poverty in the nation. There should be neither sowing nor reaping nor pruning of vines. And everybody was expected to live on what the fields and the vineyards produced, quote, of themselves, unquote, and no attempt should be made at storing up the products of the land, but it should be a time of rest, a time to trust the Lord for essentially two years' provision. So the logical question would be, what shall we eat? The answer is very simple. The Lord says, I will command my blessing upon you. So nothing was ex expected of people that year but to have faith in the Lord and confidence in his power. But the 50th year was to be a time in which liberty should be proclaimed to all the inhabitants of the country. Um, if you had fallen into financial trouble and you had sold yourself as an indentured a servant on that jubilee year, you were to be entirely released. Now, when, when the nation of Israel and the 12 tribes um, came into the promised land, every tribe was given houses and lands as part of their inheritance. 
And so what happened is over time, different people fell into poverty or they lost their money. They made bad decisions. Who knows? But they became indentured servants or they lost what they had or they lost their land. But the idea of this jubilee was you could only lose that land temporarily every 50 years. You would have a major cultural reset where everyone who was a debtor, everyone who was a slave, everyone who had lost their possessions were giving back everything they had lost. And that was considered the original year of Jubilee. Um, Guess how many times Israel practiced that? Zero. And you could imagine why. If you had taken people's lands and you had people working for you that you didn't have to pay a just salary, you may not want to let them go and give them their stuff back. Who knows? But they never did it. Now, what the Jubilee was, was, what it was, was, <laughs> what it is, is, I can't, I'm, how do you not say those? Everybody okay? Uh, it must be me. All right, let me see. The year of Jubilee was a prophetic external picture of what God wanted to do, is willing to do, and eventually did do. We're going to see this in human hearts. The deepest meaning of the Jubilee year is to be found in the restoring of all that which in the course of time was perverted by man's sin, in the removing of all slavery of sin, in the establishing of the true liberty of the children of God, and in the delivering of the creation from the bondage of corruption to which it was subjected on account of man's depravity. You find that in Romans chapter 8. But the Jubilee year was never enacted in Israel. Why? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of them is you can never force people to change by external means. You can't impose that level of transformation externally. It must come back to the kind of change that only occurs in the human heart. So we have this uh, we have this picture of jubilee. We have this concept that every fifty years God wanted this cultural reset so that there would be no continual poverty, no continued oppression um, in in the nation. Now, this brings me and my thinking to. Um, Isaiah 61, or Luke, I think it's also in Luke chapter 4, which talks about the ministry of Jesus and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and what happens when the Holy Spirit actually comes. So I'll read this out of Isaiah 61. And um, once again, I mentioned this. This was the message Jesus preached. I believe it's in Luke chapter 4. It may have been one of his very primary messages. And it reads this way. The Spirit, I think I have this here. Isn't that, uh, don't we have an overhead there? Yeah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Read that verse with me. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What's another definition for acceptable year of the Lord? Jubilee. And so Jesus, in essence, through the prophet Isaiah and in his own ministry, he said, do you remember what God wanted to inaugurate in all of Israel with a national jubilee where people's lives would be restored, where families would be restored, where poverty would be addressed, where the loss of possessions would all be restored. He said, that is my purpose. That's what Jesus was saying. I am the embodiment by the power of the Spirit of God to release into humanity the essence or the experience of a jubilee lifestyle. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus preached this, he stopped at proclaiming the acceptance of the year of the Lord. He didn't go on to the day of vengeance of our God. And I believe when Jesus died, his death actually affected aspects of that so-called day of the vengeance of our God. But then it goes on. Jesus begins to explain in some more detail what will happen to people who have been or are being ministered to by the Holy Spirit to comfort who? All who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. To give them the oil of joy for mourning. To give them the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called, what? Trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, when you have been a recipient at the deepest and most profound levels by the power of the Holy Spirit affecting change and life and grace and mercy in your heart, Here's what you have the potential to do. They shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Now, Andy and I have both made this comment that the Holy Ghost is no silver bullet. And what we mean by that is no cure-all. Buddy's as close to a cure-all as you're ever going to find. And I think one of the reasons people have encountered the Holy Spirit and have not actually been healed on all these different levels or benefited on all these different levels is because you can't extract the benefit of God from a community experience. People want to go it alone. People want to do it on their own. But this is not a do-it-on-your-own kind of thing. This is a community. This is a, this is, um, actually, it, it says in, in the Passion Translation, when the Holy Spirit came, he was splashed out on them. Say splashed out. Splashed out. 
not given in a sort of five milligram dose pill to person after person, but like waves that came splashing down or crashing down on people, going everywhere. See, God is not the way we think he is. He's the way he is. He doesn't behave the way we think he should. He behaves the way he wants to. And so the power of the Spirit of God will do this. The power of the Spirit of God can touch you in such a unique way. Someone nearby you, sitting near you, related to you, will also be influenced and um, affected or infected, but this is a good infection, without you actually being as full a participant as that person who initially was. Does that make sense? Now, I just know that for a fact. I don't understand it. I have seen times in the past where the Spirit of God would touch a hungry person and they would get a broken heart healed. Their emotions would get healed. There there may be weeping. There may be laughing. There may be nothing at all outwardly. But the end product was they would be restored. What they couldn't, oh, what they could not do for themselves, what the counselor couldn't get them to, what reason would not affect, what logic could not touch, the power of the Spirit of God can actually seep into those cracks and crevices of wounded, broken hearts and do something wonderful and then leak out on somebody else. I sort of like that. So I wanted to look back at this. The end result, mm, the end result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is restored cities, not revival. It's restored communities, not just good meetings. It's people behaving in ways they could never behave before. Not not just random manifestation. I don't know where you guys come from, but I've come from situations where when the power of God came, all sort of very interesting, unusual things would happen. And then six months or a year later, it was as though nothing had really happened to these people. But that is not the purpose of God. The purpose of God is to so touch your heart. If you have um, a broken heart, he wants to heal it. If you're poor, he's here to give you good news. He has a way to get you out of that poverty, whether it's poverty of soul or poverty of concept or this terminal negativity. Man, you know the the scariest thing in the world I can meet is a negative Christian because those two things ought to be counter something. (laughs) Couldn't think of a good word. It ought to be an oxymoron. Which one would be the moron? (laughs) If you're a negative Christian, you don't get it yet. You don't get it yet. I'm not saying you don't know God loves you. Of course. I mean, I told people God loved me as a believer before I really, really felt. You know, I like to feel loved. Who likes to feel loved? We really love you. Okay. Don't you like to feel loved instead of just be told? Or Anyway, I saw Al Sergal this morning 
Got that turtleneck on. Got those glasses looking cool. And I walked up and I hugged him. I said, I'm going to hug you until you tell me it's awkward. <laughs> I don't think I said anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's, he seemed to enjoy it, which uh, <laughs> I thought was it. But there's something about feeling loved. Not knowing the definition of love, not knowing the Bible verses about love, not just knowing John 3.16, but knowing that love that John 3.16 talks about. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the kind And the Holy Ghost is this person. He's the person that can cause you to feel loved even though your life has been a wreck and you've done many wrong things or you've done many right things and have not gotten to where you hoped those right things would get you. He will heal brokenhearted people. He will bring good news to the poor. And there's so many kinds of poverty. It's not just about not being able to pay your bills. I believe this. I believe God wants everybody to be able to pay their bills, buy stuff they don't need, give money away, support the church, support missions, and have money left over. Because God is not poor. Now, I know a lot of people talk bad about the prosperity message. I'm not one of them. I don't understand why. God can't help people overcome poverty of any kind. It's not automatic. There are issues, there are reasons, there are problems, there are concepts, there are ideas, but God is not poor. And God is particularly not poor when it comes to touching you in such a way that you will become healed and happy and prosperous and confident and positive and full of faith. What kind of God is he if he cannot do that? I'm here to say he not only can, he will. So Isaiah 61 shows what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. You know, the thing I like about Jesus is he was happy. I think being happy is underrated. I've actually heard preachers and people say, God didn't come to make you happy. That's ridiculous. So what did he come for? We already had misery down, right? We had that figured out. We were good enough at it to make everybody else miserable without even being invited. Come on. You know that's true. What kind? I don't want to listen. People aren't going to follow some sourpuss. Jesus could not have been this religious sourpuss. The Bible says they call him a drunkard, a wine-bibber and a drunkard, a party man. What would it have been like to hang out with Jesus on a continual basis? You would, I think there would be wooziness. He was anointed with an oil of gladness above his fellows. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but that was not his anointing. That was not what he was filled with. Why in the world would Jesus and Paul and the apostles say, for the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness and peace and joy, not just regular joy, high test 
joy. Joy in the Holy Ghost. God wants you happy. That's a good word. That's a great word. For the kingdom of God is not just eating and drinking, going through life like everybody else goes through life, but it's righteousness, having the capacity to do the right thing, live a noble life as a child of the king, be regal in your bearing and in your disposition and in your behavior, and then having peace when you should have no peace and having a kind of joy that's contagious, that gets out on other people, that makes people want to know who you are and why you're that way. Now, to me, that's what I'm after. I'm after that kingdom. Well, that's what Jesus gave people. He came to proclaim the reality of that acceptable year, that jubilee year. To him, it was no longer something that was going to be instituted instituted institutionally or governmentally, but it was going to be released by faith In the Son of God, it was going to be released by hunger, by desire, and by a concept and an understanding that God will touch your life. He will not leave you barren. He will not, and he said this, I will not leave you as an orphan because the Holy Ghost comes to father us. The Holy Ghost comes to be a friend to us. He comes to release in us those wellsprings of joy that have already been located in us through salvation that abide in us almost untapped. We almost don't even realize, you know, the Bible says that um, we're looking for an outpouring, not a downpour. Maybe your answer is inside of you as a believer. It just needs to flourish and come out and expand. Those rivers of living life, those rivers of living water may just need to bubble right out of you right where you are. Consolation for mourners. Beauty for ashes. What a wonderful view, vision. Beauty for ashes. Everything burned up. You know, there's one thing you can't burn any further. Do you know what it is? Ashes. You're at the end. So what does Jesus say? I'll give you beauty for everything that burned up. Your dreams, your hopes, your resource, your finance your family relationships, your marital relationships. I can beautify. I can put things right. And then it says that he will give us the oil of joy for mourning. I've hammered that pretty good already. But the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. There's another definition for spirit of heaviness. The Passion Translation calls it the spirit of failure. I will give you the garment of what? Praise for the spirit of failure, heaviness. And see, there's revelation in there. There's one thing that begins to bring you out of heaviness. And it's making a conscious decision to praise God. But you can't just be like a parrot and say, praise God a hundred times. It, it really means you begin to look Outside of yourself, you know, what was it a friend of mine said one time? He said, um, most people don't see things as they are. They, they see things 
as who they are. You don't see things accurately. You see, see things as you are. You have no idea the degree that how you view things is skewed by who you are. If you're a negative person, you have that cloud. You see everything through that. You couldn't get a blessing on a bet. And that's not right. You are blessed. See, that's the crazy thing. Everything we need, we have. We just don't know how to get in touch with it because we have attitudes, dispositions, concepts, and ideas that keep us from being full participants and enjoyers of our inheritance that's been given to us freely. Somebody say freely. Freely in Christ. He wants to give you the garment of praise for the spirit of failure. Wonderful, wonderful. He wants to restore whole cities. He talks about the desolations of many generations. Every one of us have family legacies that we may or may not be aware of. I think about my family. uh, I know more about my side than Donna's side, but like I mentioned earlier, I come from a long line of godly Presbyterians that were willing to pay the price for their faith. They took a boat. They came to the New World. I think it was like like in the the 1760s. Well, I think, Don, how far back did you tell me you could trace your family lineage, Don? 1158. You see, there's a legacy in Don's life that he could look all the way back to like pre-Magna Carta for any of you people that understand anything about it or know I'm a history major, so that sounded condescending, sorry. But if you know, <laughs> see, I'm still a work in progress myself, but. You know, the Magna Carta preceded um, like common law in England and it was like the Magna Carta and it was like the Bible and the Ten Commandments that formed the sort of righteousness concept Western civilization, Western civilization took on. Don's legacy goes all the way back to 11, what, 60, 58. But I think if you went back through Don's heritage or my heritage or your heritage, there would be a number of black sheep in that lineage. And there would be a number of people who lost what God gave them to sustain them and to improve on and to expand for the next generation. You with me? Do you see where this is going? But Jesus says one of the things he can do for a person is he can repair the desolations of many generations. He can somehow do for you something that would be so remarkable, it would be as though your entire historic lineage had been successful and brought you to the place where you could enjoy every benefit they brought down through the ages to you. That's amazing. Who believes that? Not me. I'm joking. But really, I'm just making a, you know, really, who believes this stuff? 
Have you ever read Psalm 91? There's some promises in the Bible that are wonderfully scary. No evil shall befall you. How many people are walking in that? No plague shall come near your dwelling. Though a thousand fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, it shall not come near you. Only with my eyes shall I see. And on and on it goes. No, there's these amazing promises. But part of what we need to do, we need to be empowered by the Spirit of God. We need to have ongoing encounters with the Spirit of God. We need to be vitally connected to a living, thriving community that will challenge us when we need challenging and encourage us when we need encouraging so that we can all become who we're supposed to be because you cannot do it alone. And we need to have a hunger for the word, this word that is transformative. In Romans, the Bible says you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's good, Robin. So why don't we stand up and pray? How many of you, you know what what I'm after? I'm after not a one-time episode. I'm after a continual growing release of the Holy Spirit in our midst where lives are changed. Who wants that? I want that. Let's ask for that. Lord, we're asking. We're asking for ongoing episodes. We're asking, Holy Spirit, for encounters with you. Lord, that you would heal broken hearts, that you would restore legacies, that you would break people out of the prisons of their minds or whatever prison they're in, that you would heal sick people, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would heal anyone in this room who's sick. Lord, that you would tear down those false concepts, notions, ideas that hold anyone in bondage. Lord, for brokenhearted people, that you would heal their hearts, that you would touch their hearts, that you would move in their lives. Lord, you said this was not just for adults. This was for our children. Your young men, your young women would prophesy. They would be empowered. They would see life in a way the world does not see life, and it would be good, and it would be visionary, and old men would have dreams. Young men would have visions, and you would empower generations of people to care about their communities and to care about their families and to care about their cities and to care about things worth fighting for. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, not not just right now, on a continual basis, visit us. Visit us as a church, Lord. Visit us as people in the night. Visit our children, Lord. Visit parents, children, all the generations. Visit our schools, Lord. Visit this nation, Lord. I wrote that book, Harbinger of Hope. Lord, I believe there is a major move of your spirit that wants to touch our nation again. Lord, I agree. I agree. I say, do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. 
Amen, amen. Why don't you reach over and touch someone and just speak a blessing. Just say this, receive the Holy Spirit. Yeah, lay hands, receive the Holy Spirit. A fresh new, receive the Holy Spirit. Let your power come, Lord. Let's do it again. It says it comes through the laying on of hands. Receive the Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord for a touch. Just say, Lord, touch me. Lord, touch This easy. Don't make me do everything. Words come out of your mouth. Lord, touch me. Say, Lord, touch. Unless you don't want to be touched, then say, Lord, leave me alone. No, I'm fine. Lord, touch me. And say to people around you, receive more. Receive more. Receive power. Receive presence of the Lord at a higher level. Receive wholeness and healing in Jesus' name. Say that with me, please. Just, just, let's just do this together. Receive wholeness and health in Jesus' name. Yes. I know this. I know the Lord is healing technically female problems. There's a, there's a, the, he, he is right now. I know that's going on. There's a, there's a warmth. There's a burning in your abdomen. Who is that? Somebody acknowledge this. I know, I know that's going on somewhere. Maybe it's just me, but I'm not female. <laughs> no, that's happening. Well, whatever. Anybody? Come on. Come on. You may be from, I tell you who I think it is. I think it's I think it's you. Neela, just receive. 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 Come on. Somebody else, I know I won't embarrass anyone. I don't want to do that, but just agree with this touch from God for your health. Is there someone here named Candace or Candy? Is there anyone here named that? You should know. It's okay. No? Yes, no? Okay. All right. Okay. Um, We have teams today that will continue to pray for you. Stephen Giordano helps lead that. And um, if you'll come over here, we'd be glad to minister to you. And, uh, hey, we got that movie coming up Friday night. And... um, I know next week Andy's going to start preaching. We're going to have a Christmas month. We're going to talk about the coming of the Lord and the birth of Jesus, and then we'll get back on the book of Acts. But let's do this as we walk out. Let's say together, come, Holy Spirit, more, more, more. Lord, forgive me and forgive us for any way we have offended you. We want to be full recipients of all that you want to do. Amen, amen. Have a great week. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.